You're listening to Out Here, a podcast about building a life, a community, and relationships in McCarthy, Alaska. I'm Erin McKinstry. On episode two, we'll learn about what it takes to build a life and a home from scratch at the end of a 60-mile dirt road without hardware stores or building codes. First up, the unlikely love story of Martin and Carla. Then, the trials and tribulations of construction out here. And finally, the story of how young Malcolm Vance made McCarthy his home amidst tragedy, love, and a whole lot of learning. You're listening to episode two of Out Here, Building in the Wilderness. Here goes. My name is Martin Robert Edelman Morrison. I live on the McCarthy Road, and I'm a carpenter, wildland firefighter. My name is Carla Freyvalds. I live in McCarthy, Alaska, and I am a television producer. The story of how I ended up here began with producing a show called Building Alaska. The show is about building in remote areas. And um, the first thing that struck me about McCarthy was how beautiful everything was. And the second thing that struck me was the lifestyle. And I started to become friends with people, the guys that were building, including Martin. We had already had plenty of after-work parties where we just hung out and talked about life and the world and she was clearly interested in living out here and I already lived out here so I could tell her a lot of the things she was asking me. The whole lifestyle out here of kind of less is more was so appealing to me. Um, It was like what I was looking for that I didn't know what I was that I didn't know I was looking for but I was really definitely burned out on high heels and you know, spending an hour getting ready for work in the morning and all of these trivial things that are so important in the modern world. So we wrapped the show. I left. Martin and I were seeing each other by that point. I came back in the spring and decided I wanted to try um, living out here for the summer. And so Martin and I made a deal that if he could teach me how to live out here, I would fix his editing software. (laughs) So um, that's what happened that summer. But then we just, you know, ended up together. About two years later, we're still together, so. They're kind of an unlikely pair, I'd say. Martin grew up outside of McCarthy. Longest Martin's ever been away from rural Alaska is two and a half months. And Carla leaves all the time. She travels the world for a job as a TV producer. Building is what brought them together. Building knowledge, building a partnership, building systems. Because out here, a lot of people have to start from scratch. It's not like there are Craigslist postings for rentals or real estate here. There are temporary solutions, like Martin and Carla's. The cabin they live in belongs to Martin's brother. And it's actually the one that Martin helped build for the TV show, ironically. But they're not going to stay here forever. They want to build their own life and their own place. They just bought a piece of property with friends. You know, I want to do all those things, have a big garden and build my own house and, you know... Um, just sort of set up a life on your own, you know? 
But that's going to be a while because building a life out here takes time. And that key word again, patience. Nowadays out here, you can totally pay someone to do all that work for you. I'm not going to pretend like you can't. Um, But a lot of people still don't. It's a trade-off. Rather than working to earn a paycheck to then give that paycheck to someone else to build your life for you, you put your own blood, sweat, and tears into building it all yourself. And that takes time and just a lot of, like, figuring stuff out. Here's resident Greg Bunsterman. You get into things you don't know how to do and you just learn. If you're not willing to do that, you're not going to survive out here, that's for sure. I mean, you have to be willing to figure stuff out and flounder a little bit. Take a log cabin, for example. First, you have to cut down the trees. Then you have to haul the trees to equipment that can strip them of their bark, something called peeling. Then you have to scribe and notch the logs so they fit together like puzzle pieces. Think Lincoln Logs. They get stacked, and then you have to wait for them to settle before you can sand them and fill in the cracks with something called permachink. It's this gray putty that keeps out the cold. And until then, it's really pretty cold inside. And then not to mention the inside shelving and furniture, the infrastructure for electricity, heat, and maybe water. You'll need an outhouse and a chainsaw and a generator, maybe solar panels and batteries. It's no wonder most people live in a dry cabin out here, which means without indoor plumbing or running water, if you didn't know. And then there's just the acquisition of all that information. How do you even do those things? I still don't know a lot of them. But the reward is that everything you do, everything you've built, is yours. Here's Martin again, talking about his land. It's completely natural. It's in its natural state. So everything that gets done there will be done by us. It's kind of an enlightening experience to carve a place to live out of nature. Out here, in general, you can build your house and your life your own way. For better or for worse. Here's Greg Fensterman again. There's no building codes out here, so <laughs> which is both good and bad. Um, <laughs> it means there's nobody to say, uh, "Yeah, that's that's not gonna work." You're gonna your house is gonna fall down if you do that. You know, there's all this like substandard construction that uh, people get away with it. Well, you know, there's also a lot of really good work out here, so it kind of runs runs the gamut. Next up on building in the wilderness. What it's like to build a cabin in a place where there's no public utilities and where the nearest Home Depot is an eight-hour drive if the road's in good shape. When I first realized that a lot of people's cabins out here had been built by the people who lived in them, even though they weren't professional carpenters, I was like, wait, you can do that? You can wire your own electricity without being an electrician? Or you can figure out how to set up a solar panel system with an average IQ? Out here, it's like a given that you know how to build things. I mean, there's different ways to go about it. Uh, apparently the way I go about it is to spend a lot of money and get really worked up over it and getting stressed out. So, you know, <laughs> but it comes up usually pretty quick and pretty good. It's just kind of epic. Greg Runyon's right. There's a lot of different ways to go about it. 
Some people build the biggest shack they can afford, and then they just keep adding on to it. We call them Warren houses, and I say that endearingly. And then there's the way we're doing it. I'm currently living in a tiny cabin with my boyfriend, while we, and by we I mean he, builds one that's three times the size next door. And it's still four and a half times smaller than the average American house. Less square footage means less to heat. And before I came along, he'd already built a rough road in, cleared the land using pigs, built a shop shed and woodshed, and dug a root cellar by hand. At this point, he's been working on the new place for seven years, and we still haven't installed the windows. (laughs) Granted, he's built a new restaurant in the meantime where he spends his summers working nonstop, but still, that's a while. But what I've learned is that for him, it's all about the process. I, I knew how to build, but also treating it as a learning project. So I would try things and, you know, mess with the design and think about what, what would be efficient and what wouldn't be. Um, so I built this tiny little house for less than $2,000. I love coming home to this place that I built, this custom little cabin that, you know, there's no factory manufactured door. The windows I did buy from elsewhere, but everything is pretty much custom about it. And now I've been working on the bigger project, which is a timber frame cabin, again, custom and designed by myself. And also a big learning project. And so far, so good. And then there's people who've paid other people to do part of the work, like Tamara and Stevens Harper. We did what you can do in McCarthy now, which is pay somebody else to do work for you, which, you know, a couple couple of decades ago, basically, that wasn't much of an option. But they still spent five years after that, putting all the finishing touches on and building all their systems. I think what was really hard is the amount of planning that has to occur. There's a lot of different parts, and, and the place that you're getting those parts is Anchorage, which is a seven to eight hour drive away, um, and you buy 97% of what it is that you need, and you get back and you start trying to put that system together, whether it be an electrical system or a water system or, or whatnot, and you don't have everything. You can't buy it here. We did a lot of hard work and dirty hard work, but it was satisfying and gratifying, and it was the pri- it was the top priority for five years, and we're super proud of living in a comfortable space now. Their house is modern and beautiful and looks completely finished, and that's because they lived in a tiny 11 by 13 cabin for 10 years before they moved into the new place. And that takes self-restraint. Here's another McCarthy area resident, Mark Vale, who knows from his own experience. The one thing about building houses is like, you either have to finish it before you move in, because if you move in and it's in the comfort zone when you move in, you never get it done, <laughs> you know? Because once you move stuff in to do anything, you gotta move stuff out of the way. Like, I've got 30 years of craft work and canning jars. And, you know, it's like, oh, there's a panel of interior wood that should be out there behind those jars. You know? But I'd have to take all them down and find a space for them, which would be in my way because it's only a cabin. It's not that giant space. And then when you finally do do it, you know, why didn't I do this earlier? That only took me an hour and a half, you, you know. Mark basically built his in one go, in a summer, expanding it later. I hired a neighbor, 
kid who's now in his 40s <laughs> to help me uh, haul the materials in. We spent two weeks hauling the materials in over a rough trail that I'd spent the previous three summers cutting a trail in and making it smooth enough to use. He framed up the whole thing and had a friend help him put the plywood on the roof. You know, it was in September before I got it, late September before I got it all insulated in a wood stove in. But um, as soon as I got it built, then <laughs> I drove to Anchorage and got all my worldly goods and loaded them in my 54 pickup truck and drove them out here and hauled them in and spent my first winter in 87. Then there's people like Gary Green, who's built tons of cabins. I envy his nonchalance. I suppose everybody builds their first cabin, but uh, th- mine is just over the hill right down here, and I used a dog team to drag all the logs in and haul in McCarthy. It's definitely a nice little log cabin, very rustic and not overly well insulated. Building it wasn't that hard. It's just like putting together a Lincoln log kit, and I, I was able to do it. Yeah, it was, a, it was a fun project, actually. For most people, there's plenty of hardship like Carol and Daniel Morrison. They put their first cabin up in four days, one wall a day, but it was far from perfect at that point. 16 by 20, framed and insulated building uh, with no windows at that first year. And then it snowed, so he took plywood and scooped the snow out of the building and made a step out of it. And then we put the flat roof on it the first year. And then we put the peaked roof on it the next year. Okay, you can't really hear him on the tape, but Daniel's cringing in the background, cautioning against the flat roof solution. He's actually an amazing carpenter, but that was all about speed. That fall, it rained and rained and rained, and eventually the water... Worked its way into the uh, hole in that black tar somewhere. We had insulation and visqueen, so the visqueen would come down filling up with water, you know. (laughs) You'd have to poke a hole in it, hold a bucket up there and drain it out and scream a little. They now live in a beautiful log cabin that they built themselves, hauling the logs by dog team. But I'm sure that time in a 320-square-foot windowless house with four children, one a baby, would be trying for anybody. Live and learn. That's what it's all about, I guess. Here's Greg Fensterman again. I mean, how many cabins have been built out here by people who never built a doghouse before, <laughs> you know. I mean, I'd never built anything before I started building this place. Uh, but, you know, you learn, and there's people around who will share their own experience and knowledge. And uh, and then there's the Internet and YouTube, <laughs> which is everything you need to know in life. You can learn from watching YouTube. to build a cabin. Log houses are not just easy to build. If they're done right, they're naturally cool in the summer and warm in the winter. I am building this with mostly found materials around here. Some of the two by fours that are on the floor are new, but pretty okay, much- Okay, we're out here uh, taking a look at my generator. It's really my privilege to share everything I can about root cellars with you over the next hour or so. Next up, learning how to live. I always excelled in school. 
the structure, rigidity. I could do what I was told and listen. Could fill in the bubbles the right way on standardized tests. And I thought that meant that I'd be pretty good at life. And in certain environments, it does mean that. But out here, not always. What I realize now is that just because I knew how to take tests and solve math problems doesn't mean I was good at learning in an uncontrolled environment. No, that kind of learning, it takes creativity, patience, and resourcefulness. And it takes a willingness to be less than perfect, to confront a fear that contemporary society has embedded in many of us, myself included. A fear of failure. In trying to build my life out here, I've had to confront a daily enemy. Perfectionism. It's insidious and inhibitive because you don't get learning how to live in McCarthy right on the first try, or the second, or the third. You see, when people start building their life here, building a cabin is only a sliver of the battle. Everything I thought I knew about living and that I'd lived in cold climates, I'd lived in, um, like say, adventurous places like mountains, skiing, all that stuff. It didn't even begin to prepare me for becoming a dog musher and realizing that I didn't know shit about anything. Meet Malcolm Vance, who's been coming and going from McCarthy since the early 80s, mostly spending winters here. In this half of the episode, we'll learn his story of learning how to live out here. Malcolm is magnetic. He's full of quips and smiles and laughter, an adventurer at heart. In his younger days, he mushed the Iditarod twice and traveled the Northwest Passage by dog sled. He also used to run a bungee jumping business off the Cuscalana Bridge. Sometimes I spot him paragliding over the valley in the summer, a valley he stumbled into in 1982 with the help of what sounds like an extraordinary woman named Bonnie Morris. She helped him build the foundation for the rest of his life. My name is Malcolm Vance. I live in McCarthy, Alaska, and I'm a commercial salmon fisherman in the summertime and a restauranteur in the summertime. I came here to McCarthy in 1982. In the fall of 82, in August, after a fishing season in Bristol Bay, and a friend of mine named Bachi Parada and I found an old 1969 Volkswagen van, like a classic with the louvered windows and a little camper for sale from a guy sitting in the Sears parking lot. And we started driving around the state of Alaska. And as we were cruising through, we just talking to people, we said we were on our way out the Alcan, and they said, you should stop into McCarthy. That's the highway that runs from the lower 48 through Canada to Alaska. And so we did. And uh, we met a guy named Gordon Burdick, who was an old miner, a little bit of a, a shaded past, but also a good guy in his own way, a veteran of uh, World War II. And uh, he befriended us and he was squatting and living at what is now the museum but it was the old train depot this is back when mccarthy was pretty much a ghost town 
people squatted and many of the structures left over from the mining days. It had just become a national park out here in 1980. So McCarthy was very on edge about the whole park service and the whole diatribe that was going on about it. And definitely park service was claiming different lands and things that were now rightfully theirs, but people like Gordon had been squatting in places before that during the 60s and 70s. Anyway, he had what he told us was claims up at the Green Butte Mine. That's five miles north of McCarthy to Kennecott, over the top of a ridge and into a creek drainage. And go check on his things is what he needed us to do. You know, he's got us rallied up. A couple of young guys, a couple of 20-year-olds, oh, we're going to go for this for you. This was back when there was no vehicular access to McCarthy. People had creative ways of crossing the river, waiting for it to freeze or building makeshift bridges when the water was low. But you had to use a hand tram and your own two feet if you wanted to make it to town, usually. So the local lodge ran a shuttle, and Malcolm and his friend got on. That's when we met Bonnie Morris. Bonnie had known Gordon for quite some time. And asked us why we were staying there with him, for starters, but then wondered what we were doing, if when we come back down from our hike, if we would help her build or finish off a cabin that she had started. She had the walls up, and that was all, and it was August, and she needed to finish it off before winter. And we uh, came back down from that hike and started helping Bonnie with her cabin. And one thing led to another, and she asked if I wanted to stay the winter. I had nothing else going on at the time, and I said goodbye to Bocce, and he drove away, and I stayed. She was a dog musher, and she'd already been out in the area for about 10 years. She was 18 years older than Malcolm. You know, at 20, I thought I was, you know, confident and everything else, and I wasn't. And essentially, my older girlfriend allowed me the arena to fail. And she definitely knew how to, A, live without running water, dish pans. At that time, we didn't have a sauna. So, you know, taking baths and showers in a, in a wash tub, all those things that are a for lack of a better term, a pioneer lifestyle, I did not know. And as I look back on those challenges, that I finally learned how to do that, and it so intrigued me that you don't need much. I was a traveler at the time. I'd already traveled to Europe and a couple other places as from 18 and 19. Been working at canneries and things. And Bonnie said to me, which gave me probably the biggest direction of my life to this day, 35 years later, I'm still in McCarthy. And she said, you're going to get tired of living on people's couches. Just buy this little piece of land, build a little Cub Scout den of a cabin and fill up buckets with some, you know, rice and beans and some other staples. And no matter what happens in your life, you can always have a place to come back to. He bought a small piece of property for $1,300 and started building his very first cabin. Just so you know, you wouldn't be able to buy anything for that price nowadays, so don't come rushing out. I had a lot of energy at 20. She would get me up, and I like to say, 
kiss on the cheek and a bologna sandwich. And I was out the door in the morning and she kept me busy. We'd go, went up two miles up McCarthy Creek, cutting down trees to build a log cabin. And we hauled every log for that cabin with eight dogs. But then that winter, um, everything changed. On that first winter is when then tragedy struck in March of that year and the murders happened out here. A man shot and killed six people in town on mail day. Why he did it may always be a mystery. He'd been living in the area for only about eight months. He was unemployed and recently divorced, quiet and withdrawn, supposedly a radical environmentalist. He's still alive, spending his life in prison many times over. The story of that day has been told on the internet, through news articles, on reality television. That's where you can parse the gory details of a tragedy that changed everything for Malcolm and Bonnie. Bonnie and I were actually two of five people that lived through that day. Those were most of Bonnie's best friends out here that had gotten killed. So she didn't feel and want to be out here anymore. So I have no idea where our life would have gone or what if those if that didn't happen. But as it was, I decided then to keep staying out here, keep working on the cabin, the new cabin, and she started going back to school. And there was a moment of me with all the other, you know, call it 30, 40, 50 year olds out here. And here I was 20 years old with all these things. I didn't feel like I had earned it. So I felt like I needed to kind of grow into my own confidence with it. And I felt like I needed to come up to that level or they were my heroes. And so I said, there's no way I'm leaving here. When Bonnie wanted to go to school, I was like, no, I'm staying here. And that was definitely that moment of me saying, I'm going to, I'm going to learn this lifestyle, earn it and learn it. There was no internet, no YouTube, just library books to be ordered from Juno and flown in on the mail plane and asking questions. The knowledge comes from experience. And that's the point. You start frostbiting your cheeks or something, you learn why, where, and how not to do that again. You know, with any luck, it's not severe. You don't have, you know, but you definitely learn along the way. And I actually appreciate people that just go and try it. Don't be afraid to just go fail is the whole thing. And that's kind of the thing I feel out here is there's a lot of mini failures. How to build. Everybody's always worried, how am I going to build this house? I don't know how to build a house. And you're like, of course you don't know how to build a house. You build a log cabin, those first three or four rounds are going to be a learning process, but everybody else is going to look up and see everything from their waist up. And they're not going to see all your mistakes down below. I always knew in the back of my head that there's a place that I can go. And that is my identity of home, of community, of where am I, where I'm going to live and how I'm going to live or where am I going to get the money for such a thing or I'll never be able to own my own home. And that I see so often in like say 20 and 30 something year olds that I never had to contend with. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Out Here. If you liked it and you think someone else would too, share it, please. You can find all the episodes at www.outherepodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The next episode delves into the day-to-day. What's it really like living in the middle of the wilderness without running water or indoor plumbing? Why not appreciate the fact that water doesn't just come out of a spigot? You have to work to get it. Thanks to Galen Huckins and Blue Dot Sessions for the music, to Ian Giori for the artwork, and to the University of Missouri School of Journalism, Scott Swafford, Sarah Shariari, and Dr. Christina Mislan for the support. This podcast is supported in part by a Duffy Fund grant. For Out Here, I'm Erin McKinstry, just enjoying life in the middle of the woods. See you next time.